Today, a lot of wrestling to cover over the last week. The seeds have been planted for TakeOver In Your House and for Backlash, an amazing episode of The Last Ride that we're going to review alongside Pretty Peter Rosenberg. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling 292. Happy to be here with you. Hope you're happy to be here with me. Happy to start another week. Happy Memorial Day to everybody. The Memorial Day edition here of Not Sam Wrestling. I hope everybody's having a great long weekend. I'm sure this isn't exactly how most of us would like to celebrate Memorial Day, but as things start to open up, it's controversial to even talk about the fact that things are opening up again. But, they, you know, hopefully things are getting better for wherever you are in the world right now. We are a global podcast, after all. And at the end of the day, maybe we just celebrate Memorial Day and uh, celebrate the fact that a lot of our friends and family are around us. Hopefully you got some family around or something. Maybe you fire up the grill. Maybe you're not in America and you're like, what are you talking about with Memorial Day right now? Sorry, that's for us, not for you. I'm sure you have other holidays. Maybe you're in England right now, and you're like, yeah, but Guy Fawkes Day is in not too long. And I'm like, first of all, it's not for a while. And second of all, you're just bragging about the holidays that you get and we don't. That doesn't make anybody feel better. So welcome to the podcast is the point. And happy Monday, everybody. And let's start another week in a fabulous way. Summer is finally here. I guess unless you're in Australia. Because summer is, is winter. It's very odd. You know, usually on a, on a radio show, you get a, a very localized audience. So you're all experiencing the same thing. I'm trying to make this local for everybody. So, look, at least we all like wrestling, right? Uh, it was a really tough week, actually. If we get serious for a second. It was a really tough week last week, losing two people in really, really, I mean, really tragic ways. Uh, first to lose Shad Gaspard who, you know, from crime time, who, if there's any question about whether or not somebody had a positive impact on the planet, first of all, I think, I think when a person has children, the way to truly judge them is to judge them as a parent. You know, I think at the end of the day, when I know somebody and they have good kids, I immediately put that as the highest precedent in terms of how I judge them as a human being. You know, I think that if you meet somebody and you're like, I'm not sure about this person, and then you meet their kids and they're good kids, you go, oh, they must be a, a good person. They have to be. And and when you hear about, you know, a man as a father, a woman as a mother, and, and the things that they do, that's when I, I believe that that is one of the truest reflections of who you are as a human being. So the fact that we lost Shad uh, as he was making sure that his son's life was safe says everything you can possibly say about a man and his life. I mean, you know, as horribly tragic as it is that he's no longer with us, at least he's leaving us with a positive impact. I mean, to, to, 
hear the amount of people. I didn't know Shad at all, but to hear the amount of people who did and the amount of people in wrestling who have nothing but amazing kind words to have said about this man and his legacy, to look at the way the wrestling community has supported him and his family through, whether it's through the uh, pro wrestling tees memorial shirt that they made for him and watching all the people not only buy the shirt, but but support it and, and promote it. You know, looking at all the wrestlers promoting that, looking at the GoFundMe that his family and friends started and seeing the outpouring of support from so many different members of the wrestling community. I mean, I think it, it says a lot right there. Um, and just as we were all inside this wrestling community dealing with that to then turn around and lose uh, Hannah uh, Kimura uh, in, I mean, such a horrendously tragic way, an unnecessary way. Uh, I hope that it does give people pause, and I think that it should give people pause on two levels. This is, I mean, a 22-year-old girl who had nothing but the future in front of her, who, you know, clearly the way fans are, are, are supporting her, it's not just because of how tragic the loss was, it's because they were legitimate fans of hers. And that that tells you a lot about the potential this person has in their professional life or had in their professional life for the future. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you have to, you have to get right on a personal level first. And I think that it's easy for a lot of us in the fan world to forget that there's a human being behind these professionals. We get so, uh, we get, we get so familiarized with the, professional presentation that's presented to us. We get so familiarized with with the character, with the wrestler that we get to know, we think we get to know, uh, that we forget a lot of times that there's a human being portraying a character on the other side. And that line that you have to walk when something like social media exists, when this human being reads the social media, not this character. The character doesn't read. The character exists on this TV box that we watch or at this live show that we go to. And then the character goes away and the human being picks up their phone and starts reading their app mentions. And human beings react differently than characters do. Human beings react in very human ways. And some people take things differently than other people. And I think that that's something that we forget. I think there are a lot of times when social media allows us to say things uh, to public people that we would never say things to human beings in our regular life. Uh, you know, I think that social media allows us to say things that if we said to a person's face, we ourselves would think, oh my God, I can't, like that would make me a horrible person to say that out loud to a human being. But you know, to say it on social media to a character, to a professional public person that I'm not even thinking about that they live at home and have a life, that's a little bit easier. Um, so I hope that it does give people pause when it comes to how they themselves act on social media because some people are just wild on social media. Um, the other thing that I really hope that people can take away from this is the importance that we 
all tend to give social media in our own lives. And that the fact that that we know when we're outside of it, we know people need to act differently on social media because this is not how they act in real life and they would never act this way in real life. The fact that we on some level know that this stuff we're reading for the most part is not what people would say to us in real life. Um, I think we all need to take social media far less seriously on every level. And maybe that means looking at it less often. And maybe that means really taking a mental inventory of the positives and negatives of this and, you know, trying to utilize it as much as possible for the positives and connecting with a fan base and trying to cut out a lot of the negatives. Maybe it means reacquainting yourself with that block button and that mute button, you know? Maybe it means not dipping into the app mentions as often, but at the same time, you want to connect with your fan base, right? You know, I think I think the primary thing people have to do is act like human beings when you get on the internet, you know? Act like you would on the internet as you do in person. But at the same time, when you encounter people, because you can, you will never have control over other people's behavior. And when you encounter somebody that just doesn't quite get it, you know, somebody that is probably a fairly damaged person themselves, that just can't act like a human being on social media, maybe that's when you utilize that block button and that mute button and you realize that this person is not a normal human being. I don't know. I mean, I think that the, you know, there's just a lot to unpack and it's really tragic and horrible and how preventable it was, you know? That's where it really gets. When you see a 22-year-old go with so much potential and you realize how preventable it was and you realize that people's actions could have changed it, I think it, it eats away at a lot of us. So it's tough. And it was really tough to lose both those people. And uh, I mean, ironically wrestling is what brings those tragedies into our lives. The reason we, as people who don't know either of those two individuals, feel that so much is because wrestling has brought those people into our lives. And when we need an escape from feeling that kind of hole in your gut that you get from these losses, you go back into wrestling for the escapism. I mean, wrestling is, for us hardcores, it can be everything. And I think that that's okay. I think that, that that can be great. It can be a great emotional outlet. I mean, I know that I go when, when, when the real world is, is starting to weigh heavy, wrestling has become an amazing escape pod, especially when you can find good wrestling. Oh my God. There is nothing on the planet for me that is a better escape than really good wrestling. I mean, and, you know, for different reasons. I'll have moments where I've got to turn on Japanese death matches, not for the violence of it, but because I start to get nostalgic of my days, like, you know, in high school. You start to feel like you're a teenager again, just discovering these FMW VHS tapes. Or I'll, I'll want to get nostalgic for, I'll go to the network, and I'll turn on just a random episode of WWF Superstars from 1992. And I'm not sitting there going like, oh, man, it was so bad back then. I'm sitting there going, I remember in 91, 92, living in England where they would air WWF Superstars Friday nights at 10 p.m. And my parents, I was eight years old, they wouldn't let me stay up to 
11 p.m. from 10 to 11 to watch it. So I remember setting the timer on the VCR to make sure it recorded and waking up at five o'clock in the morning on Saturday mornings so I could watch my VHS tape of WWF superstars as they led up to WrestleMania eight. And like, I find those episodes, I get nostalgic for that. And then I'll turn on modern, modern day wrestling. And when it's good and when these stories start being told, I'm in man, I'm in. And it goes like, you know what? There's the, the, the world keeps moving. There's still fun here. So, you know, I think it really is interesting what, uh, what, what wrestling does for us. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you this week, if we can move in kind of somewhat organically to talking about topical wrestling stuff again. Uh, this week, I thought specifically, or last week, I guess, I thought specifically Raw and NXT moved a step forward in the right direction. I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think those two shows showed improvement. I think that, I, I mean, NXT is my favorite wrestling show on TV anyway, so I just have high expectations for that show. I think Raw has had way too much wrestling and has started shifting more towards story, which I think is really good. And NXT, I just thought, the pace of this week's episode was what the pace of NXT should be, especially as we lead up to a takeover. The pace of this week's episode where most of the matches were kept short, the segments were kept short. It was like, here's something else. Here's something else. Here's something else. And there's character development. And I thought it was really good. It answered questions. Velveteen Dream comes back. I thought it was really good. Um, I thought the standout to Raw, for me, my takeaway, uh, first, I think Drew is still great. Um, I do think a little more storytelling needs to be done to get me excited about Drew McIntyre versus Bobby Lashley. But I think that that can be done. I think that's a match that I can be excited about if the storytelling is done. Um, and I think uh, I'm, I'm, I've am I'm been thinking a lot about the Austin Theory move and how that was played out on television. And I really liked it. So I was very against the Zelina Vega crew breaking up. I really liked the idea that Zelina Vega's crew was not so much just a here's the next generation of Hispanic wrestlers crew. It was here's the next generation of wrestlers. When Austin Theory came in, the crew took on a different dynamic, which I liked. And when they kicked him out, I was like, you know, I wouldn't have minded if he got kicked out eventually. Uh, but I, I was like, I don't know that we've reached the potential of this group as a trifecta yet. Also, I worry about Austin Theory. You know, I don't know because in my mind, you know, my dumb mind who doesn't See what's coming. Scoops Roberts didn't get the scoops this time. Hack wrestling journalist Scoops Roberts didn't understand what was going on with Austin Theory. I was just another one of these. Uh, I, technically, I was a hack wrestling journalist. You know, a hack wrestling journalist is the one that's going to sit there and go like, well, this brand extension is stupid because AJ Styles is going to, if he wins the tournament, how is he only going to be there for four weeks? And it's like, just give it a minute. Give it a breath. They'll explain it. AJ Styles got traded to SmackDown. Makes sense. I'm fine with it, you know? Well, if Austin Theory gets kicked out, and again, this is what I was saying, hack wrestling journalist, Scoops Roberts. If Austin Theory gets kicked out of Zelina Vega's group, I don't think he's strong enough to be a babyface on his own. Okay, give it a breath. Give it a beat. Wait a second. Let's see where it goes, because two segments later, he's joined the Monday Night Messiah, and I love that. I love the idea, because if you look at the Seth Rollins story, I'm a fan of the Seth Rollins character, still. a lot. Some people aren't. I am. I, I really like 
the Seth Rollins character. I like this version of Seth Rollins. Um, and I love the idea of him having a faction. I'm a fan of factions, okay? I like factions. I think factions are good. I'm going to do the Michael uh, Douglas greed is good speech from Wall Street, except instead of saying greed, factions, for lack of a better term, are good. Factions brought America to where we are. I love factions. Factions are a great thing in wrestling because factions take an Austin Theory who maybe isn't quite ready to just burst onto the scene and make it happen. And 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 it, and it gives them an identity. It gives them a purpose. It gives them different directions to go in. You know, I mean, you look at factions and it's like, okay, Umberto Carrillo comes in, not in a faction. And where is he now? Uh, Cedric Alexander comes in, not in a faction. Where is he now? However, Angel Garza comes in, in a faction, and all of a sudden... We got the the rub from Zelina Vega. We got the 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 rub from Andrade, and boom, we got something here. There's an identity built in. We're giving this time. Maybe somebody's not that good at explaining themselves what their identity is. So the little pillars of the faction are going to be able to do it for you. You know, I mean, I think at this per, uh, point, Humberto uh, Carrillo. Heel turn, maybe he turns on Ray or something like that and joins the Zelina Vega crew. I think that'd be great. I think it'd be really good. You know, I think, uh, and I, I, I think that Seth Rollins' faction is good. I think that it's done wonders for Murphy because Murphy is one of those guys. Murphy is this crazy talent, unbelievable talent. But who is Buddy Murphy? Who is Murphy? Now he's just got one, he's just a guy named Murphy with red hair. Who is he? I guess he picked a fight with Aleister Black that one time and lost. But who is he? Well, he's a follower of the Monday Night Messiah. And one day, maybe he'll turn on him. One day, maybe he'll get turned on. You know, there's many things that could happen. But this idea that Seth Rollins evolved into the Monday Night Messiah and he turned into the Monday Night Messiah because we go back a couple months. It, it actually makes sense. We go back a couple of months. And the reason that Seth Rollins turned into the Monday Night Messiah is because... He wanted to be the locker room leader. And in real life, this was a time when fans were sitting there going, we are not feeling Seth Rollins as the guy. We're not feeling Seth Rollins as the champion. We're not feeling Seth Rollins as the face of the company. I don't like him on Twitter. And it just doesn't work for me. I don't believe the character. And I hate all the Seth Rollins-Becky Lynch relationship stuff. It's just, That's just what fans were saying when it was time for Seth Rollins to be the man. That energy... Instead of just saying, you fans didn't give me the respect, that energy really was put on the WWE locker room in storyline. When Seth Rollins comes out after Survivor Series and has the locker room around the ring and still proclaims himself the leader, and the locker room puts a vote of no confidence in him and walks out on him. Now, that obsession with being a locker room leader has evolved into this sort of Jesus complex, this uh, very uh, uh, David Koreshian cult-like thing where he absolutely has to be the leader. And so he finds these guys that need leading. He finds a Buddy Murphy that doesn't have a task on Raw, that doesn't have an identity on Raw. And he goes, I can take care of you. And he needs somebody to take care of him. He's being ignored otherwise. It makes sense. Next, and the Authors of Pain. It's like when the Authors of Pain left Seth Rollins because 
uh, the one of them got injured. It hurt Seth Rollins because Seth Rollins is better with a an array of followers, with a faction of followers instead of just one follower. So the idea that you have Austin Theory now, who's been left on his ass in a position similar to what Seth Rollins was left on by the Raw roster, Seth Rollins understands. You know, Austin Theory is this is this lost soul. Austin Theory is this man who showed up on Raw. He turned on everybody because he thought Zelina and the crew had his back. They turned on him. Now he's got no friends. Now he's got no identity left. And Seth Rollins is there to take care of him. That's how Stockholm Syndrome is built. That's how people join a cult. That's how people end up in a cult. Their life is out of control. They need leadership. And Seth Rollins feels like a leader. So boom, here we go. Let's go. Hey, sorry if you could pardon the interruption for a second. You know, you wouldn't have to pardon the interruption for a second if you didn't have any more interruptions. And if you don't want these interruptions and you want to get the podcast early, then you should become a Not Sam Shill. Go over to patreon.com slash Not Sam Wrestling and you can become a Not Sam Shill today. For less than a dollar a week, you can start with not only early podcast every single week, but an additional Not Sam Wrestling podcast every single Thursday that every level of the Not Sam Shills gets to have. You'll also get access to our Discord room where there are Not Sam Shills talking wrestling 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But as those tiers go up, the benefits go up too. Of course, you'll get all the video early. You get access to the Not Sam studio. You'll get to watch me record the podcast live every single week and do a Q&A with you guys after the podcast taping every single week. We do Zoom meetings before pay-per-views and talk to the Not Sam Shells about everything we expect to see on the pay-per-view that's coming up. Plus exclusive merchandise and a whole lot more. We're building an amazing community. The Not Sam Shills over at patreon.com slash Wrestling. So I like the Seth Rollins faction. I like the Seth Rollins character. I like Austin Theory being in it. When you break it down, it makes sense. When you think about it, it actually makes sense. There's so much in wrestling that when you think about it, it hurts your head. The more you think about it, the more illogical it is. But with this Seth Rollins character, the more you think about it, the more logical it is. And every week he progresses more and more into crazy town. And that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. When you read any story of a cult leader, it starts great. It starts great. All these cult leaders that end up like destroying lives and destroying themselves. Everything starts really good. That's why people join. And then slowly they go into these pits of madness. And these people who are the followers of these cult leaders have invested so much of their life into the leaders that they can't separate from it. They've invested too much for, to, to now say, well, I just have to leave because they don't have anything. They've invested their whole life into this leader because when it was good, it was good. Now it's bad and they don't have anything. So they have to stick around and go down with the ship. That's what happens with cults. And that's what's happening here. And I think it's, uh, I think it's awesome. You can almost see it in Buddy Murphy's face. Like that, that, that thing where Seth was hugging Austin Theory and Buddy Murphy looked on like, is Buddy Murphy happy to have another member? Or is he jealous because he's not the new guy anymore? He's not the golden boy anymore because his leader that that he has put almost a paternal light on is now looking at another superstar the way he once looked at Buddy. 
I think it's very complicated. I think it's very good. I think it's very good. I think Alistair Black is a great opponent for them. I think that the the idea that there's complications within the group could be good. I think that I do think that the Monday Night Messiah's group needs to continue on for a little while. I don't think that, you know, planting the seeds of Buddy Murphy getting jealous now would be the right thing to do. But the idea that you could kind of see on his face where he would be, I think is very, very good. So I like it. I was really excited by it. Um, you got uh, uh, the lead to both Backlash and TakeOver happening. I have to believe the WWE is being so over the top with greatest match ever, possibly for the Rollins. I mean, for the Edge and Orton. I was just thinking Randy and Orton and R and O and Rollins for the Orton and Edge match. The fact that they have a giant billboard in the back saying greatest wrestling match ever. I mean, I feel like something's got to give, right? There's got to be s- something going on here because it's amazing. <laughs> It's an impossible expectation to live up to. I was just watching The Last Ride, which we'll talk about uh, this week, and they were talking about Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker. And I'm like, Randy Orton versus Edge in the Performance Center with no fans in the audience is not going to be better than Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania. It's not. So what gives? How can you put these kind of expectations on this match? Is it tongue-in-cheek, or is it for real, for real? I'm waiting to see. I'm interested. Because it's not going to be... It's going to be a really good wrestling match. But it won't be the best one ever. It can't... Well, who knows? Who knows? But probably not. There probably already was one of those. Um, I'm telling you, I'm going to tune into that pay-per-view, though, just to see how they meet those expectations. Maybe Randy Orton comes and just, you know uses every weapon imaginable and makes it not a wrestling match at all. Maybe they show up in singlets and they're on a wrestling mat the way I said that they needed to do for Daniel Bryan and Sami Zayn. Who knows? I don't know. But your other matches, it's looking like uh, Drew McIntyre versus Bobby Lashley in the for the WWE Championship and Miz and Morrison versus Braun Strowman for the Universal Championship. Um, you know, I do. I mean, I think that Braun Strowman is going to make mincemeat out of those two. But I, I would imagine that we will see The Fiend pop up. I think that that's the reason for that match happening. And I think it's good that Bobby Lashley is getting that opportunity. I mean, you know, I think it'd be amazing if they put the title on Bobby Lashley and then had Drew chase him. I think that because it would be so unexpected. I don't see that happening, but I, I do think it would be an amazing thing. Uh, and then you have TakeOver in your house. NXT's next TakeOver. You know... I'm really interested to see how NXT pulls off a takeover without an audience because the takeover audience is like no other audience in wrestling. I mean, it's it's these rabid NXT fans that have been waiting to see NXT live, but they can't go to full sale because they don't live in Orlando and there's only 200 tickets to that building. So they finally get to see NXT live. And I mean, the energy in those buildings is like nothing else in the, in the world as far as wrestling goes. Um so, you know, you've got an amazing card you're looking like. I, I love that you have Charlotte versus Io Shirai versus Rhea Ripley. I think that uh, I think that it makes it easy for Charlotte win or lose because, number one, if you wanted to take the title off of Charlotte, which I don't think you do yet, but if you wanted to take the title off of Charlotte, uh, you can do it without beating her. So she could stick around NXT theoretically or so it wouldn't hurt her on Raw or SmackDown. But I think more importantly, Charlotte can retain and still have both those superstars as viable opponents. 
you can have Charlotte retain the NXT championship, which I think is what they should do, and have EO and Rhea still be viable as one-on-one opponents. Charlotte still wouldn't have beaten either of those two one-on-one, except for Rhea, obviously, at WrestleMania. So, you know, I, I, I think if I, right now, we still got a couple weeks, I think, but right now, I would probably have Charlotte pin Rhea in that match. Because eventually, I think Rhea should probably win the title back. And I love those obstacles being set up for Rhea Ripley. I think, but yeah, I think Charlotte pins Rhea in this match. Because here's the thing it's a triple threat. People will expect if Charlotte's going to retain, she'll pin Io Shirai. Io Shirai will be the sacrificial lamb, so Rhea Ripley loses. I think she pins Rhea and really put Rhea up against the wall. So eventually, when Rhea gets that one on one rematch against Charlotte, Charlotte can say, I've beaten you twice. But since this is a triple threat, it wouldn't really feel like Rhea's been beaten twice, you know? Um, Champa versus Karrion Cross. Uh, you know, I think when you look at this match, and we'll talk about this more as it gets closer. We'll do a whole preview episode to this takeover in your house. But, I mean, I would definitely right now have Karrion Cross win this match. You know, I, I honestly, I think Champa stays in the main event picture win or lose here. Champa has be, is an NXT legend because of his story with Johnny Gargano, but let's be honest. What do you want to see? Do you want to see Karrion Cross versus Adam Cole or do you want to see Tommaso Champa versus Adam Cole? If you sit there and you tell me the main event for the next takeover is Champa versus Adam Cole, I think two things. Number 1, that's a great match, but number 2, I thought we were putting some new blood into NXT. That's it. You know, I think this is this is the time to really show you what NXT does in terms of building new stars. And I, I mean, I, I think that Karrion Cross, for the amount of buzz that he has for his debut, especially coming out in a time like this, when there's less attention being paid to wrestling because of the world, because uh, of the conditions that we're in right now, you know, I think I think this is the opportunity to really put Karrion Cross on the map. And then Finn Balor versus uh, Damian Priest Archer. Uh, you know, I don't think that this is the one to have Finn Balor lose. I'd love to see Damian Priest get a big victory at some point, but I don't think that this would be the one. Um, And before we talk about the last ride, I do want to say right now, somebody, somebody on SmackDown, I don't know if it's Corey Graves himself, I don't know if Bruce Pritchard has to come out of his director's chair and do something personally. Somebody has to protect Michael Cole. Michael Cole is a treasure. Michael Cole needs to be protected at all costs. Michael Cole is the WWE's MVP of the era that we're living through right now. And Sheamus is putting that man in physical danger every week. I get real Heidenreich vibes from Seamus. Real Heidenreich vibes. And you Google that if you don't know what I'm talking about. But the last thing that Michael Cole needs is to deal with the type of stuff that he dealt with with Heidenreich again. Michael Cole has ascended to legendary status. Michael Cole needs to be respected as such. You want to Heidenreich Michael Cole in the old days? Heidenreich him all you want. Michael Cole has lived through the wedgies. He's lived through the mockeries. He's lived through the dousings with bar- barbecue sauce. He's lived through the Stone Cold Stunners. He's lived through the bad WrestleMania matches. 
He's lived through the orange singlets. He's lived through it all. At this stage of Michael Cole's career, for him to have to deal with the likes of Sheamus, unacceptable. I want to fly down to Orlando myself and, and use myself as a human shield to protect that man, that treasure of ours, Michael Cole. I worry for him. Every Friday, I get Ajita. Every Friday, I wake up with anxiety because I know at 8 o'clock, I'm going to turn on the TV and Michael Cole may be in physical harm from Sheamus. And by the way, Corey Graves is doing nothing, nothing to help his partner. Nothing, okay? You listen to Corey Graves on this podcast. He's like, oh yeah, Michael Cole and me are friends. Doesn't seem like that to me. Because I saw Corey Graves give Sheamus the thumbs up. All I see is Corey Graves getting out of his way. Hey, Shamo, you want your shot at Cole? Go right ahead. Some friend. Michael Cole is a treasure and needs to be treated as such. It's terrible what's happening to Michael Cole. And somebody needs to protect that man from Sheamus. It's insane. It's insanity. And it needs to stop. I'm glad I got that off my chest. Probably going to have to put that one on social media because people need to see that. People need to heed my warning. All right, guys, look, I tweeted this uh, yesterday. Um, I truly believe that The Undertaker's Last Ride documentary is probably the best network original. I've watched, I want to say every WWE Network original that's come out since the inception of the network. I was a day one subscriber I've watched the Monday Night Wars 10 times each. I watch every documentary that comes out. I mean, before the WWE Network, I literally got every single documentary DVD. I still have all of them in my house. All of them. I've watched every WWE documentary. All of them. There's not one I haven't watched. And there are some great ones. The CM Punk one is great. The Paul Heyman one is really, really good. The Rise and Fall of ECW is great. Um, I really like all the Monday Night Wars. I like all the Ruthless Aggression shows. They've made some really good ones. Um, the the uh, the Tom McGee special was fantastic, really primarily because of my contributions to it. But I really believe that The Undertaker's Last Ride series is the pinnacle of WWE originals, period. I, I think it's it's probably the best thing that WWE has created for the network. And it's one of the best WWE created shows of all time, if not the best. I, every week, this is now the third week in a row that I've just left flabbergasted at how good it is. It's that good. And this week was, was I mean, no different. There is so much to deconstruct, uh, deconstruct, so much to dissect. And there are theories about last week that I presented on this podcast uh, that I want to get feedback on. So... Um, I thought that for this week, we would bring in a special guest. I thought for this week to talk about The Last Ride, I would bring in somebody who likes The Undertaker almost as much as me. It would be as much, except he wasn't watching during the Attitude Era. He caught up on YouTube, but almost as much as me. And by the way, who was with me experiencing WrestleMania 33, The Undertaker's Roman Reigns WrestleMania, as his first WrestleMania employed with the company as well, uh, to get his feedback 
on episode three of The Last Ride. My guest this week, uh, let's talk to him. He's known in many circles as Pretty Peter Rosenberg. From the Michael K. Show on WFAN, from the morning show on Hot 97, from Cheap Heat. Here he is, Peter Rosenberg. Hey. What's up, buddy? How you doing, Sammy? You good? I'm, I'm good. How are you doing? You know, I'm in this, uh, You, I guess, used to this time period, sort of the in-between, like, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable enough. I, I'm both ready to go back, and also it dawned on me recently, everyone's going to be like, I want to go back to normal. And then you're going to, like, have to drive back to work in the morning and be like, I don't want to be doing this. I, I was really <laughs> used to being at home. It's so funny, because I was getting ready to talk. I was thinking in my head that I want to talk to Jim about this, because... Uh, you know, yesterday they said that, uh, they're going to start opening up Westchester back on Tuesday and I don't like want them to, <laughs> you know, I, I like, I built this place. I'm, I'm in my space. Like I don't ever, I've, I've had conversations with Norton where I'm like, like you understand, I don't want to go back to Sirius. And he's like, yeah, but you know, once we're all back in studio, you won't want us to do the show without you. And I'm like. I think I don't care if you do the show without me. I, I think I, know, I think I, I want to stay you, home. You you really I mean you were so excited when you built this studio and I mean I was pretty excited for you. It's kind of like the dream and you know like I was always like man Sam by, by by moving out of the city and having a house he has this opportunity to create like this real thing. It like could not have paid off more. Yeah. It's like it's I, kind of ridiculous. I'm the king of Zoom these days. Nobody's got a better Zoom setup than me. Nobody. No, like, like there are other people who are managing, but like yours, literally, it just looks like you're <laughs> in a, you never left. Like this is what it should be. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, listen, we're obviously fortunate to be able to have this conversation and a lot of people aren't working and I'm, I'm super lucky to have been working so much. But yeah, I, I think we're all accustomed to it now and it'll be weird when it's like time to, time to start waking up earlier and, 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 and getting into work, but you know. Let's talk about what we're here to talk about. Let's talk about the content that is being afforded to us during this period. Um, do you think I'm out of line when I describe uh, The Last Ride? We're now three episodes deep. And three episodes deep, I believe that this is the best WWE-produced documentary series or single documentary ever. And it's one of the best WWE-produced products ever. Um, no, it, you're, you're certain it's certainly in the conversation for best doc thing they've done. Mm -hmm. I think if we went back and we, we, and we're, we try not to be prisoners of the moment, we could find other docs they've done specifically that we thought like were incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, some of their three sixty fives and 24s mm -hmm. and all those are, if I went specifically through them all, I'm sure I'd find some that I was like, yo, this one was amazing. Um, but this is right there at the top. Yeah. I think I think it's going to get harder. I think the I've been told they get better as it goes on and that uh, the first was the worst and they get better and better. But I'll be curious to see where they go over the next few um, because there was so much great stuff early on. And as you get more used to seeing him out of character, because for me, the first couple were just like, I can't believe I'm seeing him this way. Yeah. I didn't know that I'd ever want this, but I do. I love it. This is the logical conclusion for him. Um, and as you get more used to it, 
do the final episodes really deliver the way the first couple did? But it, it, you know, it's been awesome. There's no arguing that. I feel like for me, it has gotten better with each of the three. Like the third, the second, I was blown away that I liked it better than the first. And the third, I was blown away that I liked it better than either the first or the second. And then I look at the preview for the fourth and I'm like, we're doing the Goldberg match. We're doing the Goldberg match. This is insane. But I'm glad that you're here specifically because you know from when we were running down Money in the Bank that I like I like throwing my theories at you because I feel uh, no. like you're a brain that I can trust. And you will also. You're honest enough to tell me, no, that's stupid or, okay, I like where you're going here. So this, and they should have used more of your ideas at, uh, at Money in the Bank, but that's okay. Yes. No, they should have. They absolutely, or, or was it – I think it was WrestleMania. It was, it was, it was Mania, WrestleMania, but yes, but still. Um you know, I don't live in the past, though. We move, we move forward. We move, we move forward. We move forward. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. I just want to let you guys know there's a lot of ways you can support this podcast absolutely for free. First of all, make sure that you're subscribed on whatever podcast platform that you use, whether it's Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google Play. We're everywhere. Just make sure you hit that subscribe button and that the show downloads every week. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and write a quick review for the show. It helps more than you know. That's why all of these podcasts ask you to do it. And if you want to go the extra mile and look cool doing it, we're in the merch game. Our friends at Pro Wrestling Tees are helping us out. NotSamShirts.com is the place to go. NotSamShirts.com. If you want to support this podcast or one of the other Not Sam properties represented on a t-shirt over the weekend, we just put up the action t-shirt. This is a t-shirt that pays tribute to the worst moment of my professional career, my WrestleMania 34 screw-up, and... Action is on the way. You can now represent that with a picture of my stupid face trying to get words out that make sense to no one. NotSamShirts.com is the place to go, at least to just look at it and have a good laugh at me. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Let's get back to listening to it. But here was my takeaway after episode two, and they touched on it on episode three. The question that was never really answered, and I think it's interesting because this is all coming from Undertaker's perspective which means that the questions that The Undertaker still has are not answered. So we don't get the answer as to why, really, the Undertaker-John Cena match was three minutes long. We get the fact that it's a question, like it is brought up, and The Undertaker, it's a, one of the surprising things was that The Undertaker was left with that question because I think at 34, we were all assuming that the reason it was three minutes long is because The Undertaker could go three minutes, right? I mean, that was the general consensus. But now we find out that The Undertaker was ready to go 40, he says, and was bummed out that it only went three minutes. So my theory coming off of episode two, and it like hit me and I started getting goosebumps. And I'm going a little bit into conspiracy theory mode, but I think I'm on the money, is that I believe that the entire purpose of The Undertaker-John Cena match was not to give The Undertaker the last match that he wanted. The entire purpose of The Undertaker-John Cena match was to rebuild The Undertaker's confidence and to remind him that there was gas left in the tank to make him want to do more. So when The Undertaker has his meeting with Vince McMahon and he goes, uh, you know, it was weird. Vince McMahon didn't try to convince me that I could keep going forever. I wonder what he, angle he was playing. And that made me think, I wonder what angle he was playing. And then I go and I see that there is no real answer as to why the match only went three minutes. And I go, oh, my God, I believe 
that this match was simply designed to rebuild The Undertaker's confidence so he could get another couple years out of him because his confidence was shot down so low after his Roman Reigns match. And after I realized that, it led me to have this amazing, even more newfound respect for John Cena because I realized that John Cena, who was aware that this is why this match was happening, made himself a complete sacrificial lamb, allowed this match, because if this match goes 40 minutes, it's just as much about John Cena as it is about The Undertaker. But if this match goes three minutes... It's only about The Undertaker. It's only about The Undertaker, and John Cena doesn't have a moment for himself that could have been as big as the Shawn Michaels-Undertaker moment, theoretically. So John Cena sacrifices himself because he knows that what the company wants is The Undertaker to realize that there's gas left in the tank so that he can go and do all these other matches that he's done since then. Peter Rosenberg, your thoughts? I don't think that's really conspiratorial. I think that's completely logical. Because um, unless you are willing to believe that the reason they did it the way they did was for time, mm -hmm. and, and that doesn't really make sense. Like, why would you speed through Cena and Undertaker to get to some of the matches that right now I probably couldn't remember to tell you what they were right um and also it makes sense of why the hell they never decided to advertise that match I, i've been immensely frustrated one of my biggest frustrations of the last few years has been the use of john cena at wrestlemania i i've not understood it's like the end of john cena's prime when it comes to wrestlemania feels like it's been thrown in the garbage more or less yeah and 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 in that case, I didn't understand it at all. And if, if your theory is correct, it makes a lot more sense because they obviously knew the match was happening. Yes. So if you know the match is happening, why would you not want Undertaker and Cena on the billboard? Like, why, why would you just think, no, let's – but you only do that because, well, we don't want to advertise it because it's going to be a three-minute match. Yes, and if we give The Undertaker his 40-minute John Cena match and it's good – what if he actually does walk away? Right. We, we don't want then that. Then that becomes the actual end. Yes, and we don't want the end. We don't want and, the and, end yet. And 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 I, I think it's a – listen, I hope your theory is right because uh -huh. otherwise I don't – from a Cena standpoint, and then you get into a really interesting conversation about what's more valuable, extending The Undertaker or is – let me put it this way. Is extending The Undertaker worth devaluing another John Cena WrestleMania? In other words, when the book is written, I thought where we were going was they were going to try to tell the story that John Cena is like the greatest superstar of all time. And if that's the case, the last few years at WrestleMania have not helped his resume right, at all. Right, right. So is it? Uh, so then you have to ask the question, and maybe right now is not the best time because we're in such sort of Undertaker heaven. But is that a worthwhile trade-off, or would you have been better off for John Cena's legacy having him have that war versus Undertaker a couple of years ago? Well, I think at the end of the day, more so than any other person on Cena's level, which see it's Cena is on the same level. It's Hogan, Austin, Cena, Undertaker, Sean, Hunter. Like that is that's that. That's that God level, right? I yes. think that Cena is the most, is the person, and he would ne he never gets credit for it. He has sacrificed 
absolutely more than anybody else because, and I think I talked about this last week on the podcast, but I, I think uh, at some point I was having a conversation with uh, uh, human encyclopedia Wade Keller, and the two of us at the same time realized that John Cena, his last WrestleMania main event was at 29 against The Rock. And after his main, after his second main event, he won his main event against The Rock, and he never main evented WrestleMania again. And that was six years ago. Yeah, six, seven, seven. years ago. Seven years ago now. So I feel like they gave him his victory against The Rock, and from that point on, it was, John, your duty is to, is to get the next level, the next generation ready. And he took it on the chin, and he did it. And I don't think, Which, they, I don't think people have realized it yet. Well, because you know why it's so bizarre because the the super Cena lasted for so long the the every storyline kind of going the same way mm-hmm. with Cena winning no matter what. Mm-hmm. And again, Hogan did the same thing. We've talked about this before. Hogan did the same thing, but because he wasn't doing it every week on TV, mm-hmm. it didn't get played out in the same way it did for Cena. That's a great point. People got more fed up with Cena's Super Cena because there was a period where it was basically literally every Monday night ended with it. Mm-hmm. So after a while, people got kind of fed up with the Cena story. And you're right. He really has. I mean, I would say Triple H is in the conversation, too, yep. for guys who are just willing to do the job when it matters and they will ultimately lose. But it's like now people – don't give Cena the credit he deserves because of all those years of winning and winning and winning. But now to me, it's gone almost too far. And, and like, don't get me wrong. The Firefly Funhouse was a, a, a great, this, this mania was great. The only two people who I would say truly won WrestleMania this year uh, were, were Cena and Undertaker. Bray also. Um, and AJ, the four of those guys really won WrestleMania this year. Yeah. So that was a big deal for both Cena and Undertaker. And we can get there further in the Undertaker conversation. But it's a it's a it's a really great point. Cena has done that over and over again. And when you look at I would have loved to have heard Cena's thoughts. It's interesting that they specifically didn't show Cena mm-hmm. talking about the length of the match. Only Undertaker appeared miffed with the length of the match. Because Cena knew the answer. And the fact that The Undertaker doesn't really know know the answer makes it so we don't know the answer because this story is The Undertaker's perspective. The The idea of that the fact that The Undertaker was ever, in a way, getting worked is absolutely kind of ridiculous to even think about. But. It is, but now we know Mark Calloway. And I'm like, okay, I, like because you're right. Because the three weeks ago, I would have said you're never going to work The Undertaker. But now, and I think that this week's episode, more so even than the last two, we see the kind of uh, the fragility in Mark Calloway. We see the artist, the fragile artist in Mark Calloway. And the fact that at the end of the day, this entire story is the fact that he can't let go. He can't he can't walk away because. I was watching this week and 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 tell me what you think of this because this week okay. I think thematically this week was really about the Undertaker searching for that moment and not getting it and how he says that he wanted the Cena match to be his moment but even if that had been a 40 minute match I don't think the Undertaker can walk away. I don't I think if the Undertaker gets his moment he still won't be able to walk away. There'll be something in his head that says that yeah, was great. Why one more, one more, one more. Exactly. That was great. Why would I stop now? Um, they talk about how he wants the Shawn Michaels ending. And after episode one, 
I said that that's exactly what he wants because one of my favorite interviews I've ever done is with Shawn Michaels when he explained why he had an easier time staying retired. It's because he looked at his career from the Rockers up until the last match as one story, which blew my mind when mm. I thought about it. But that's one character and one story. And that made sense to be the end of the story. And I was like, that's mind-blowing the way you say that. And The Undertaker wants to have that moment, but The Undertaker doesn't have The Undertaker. Shawn Michaels had The Undertaker. The Undertaker doesn't have The Undertaker. And that was my theory at first, but then I realized The Undertaker had the moment. He's That's why I don't think he'll ever have the moment, because he already had it. The Undertaker's moment was 28. The Undertaker's moment was the match with Hunter and winning the Hell in a Cell. The moment... That the, the under three of them yes. on, on the ramp together. Yeah, that was the moment he's been looking for ever since then. It's like, you know, and it's a drug. You can tell the way he talks about it. It's a drug, and he got a really good high on that night because that was the moment, and he's been searching for that high ever since. And I don't think it'll ever come again. So it, it's this is fascinating because I think it's a great parallel between the last dance yeah. and the last ride. Yeah, Jordan. You know, I really think that we we struggle in this country and in the world, but I only know here to talk about addiction, like and really talk about it in in different ways. We just think drug addict, alcohol, we think strictly chemical. What we don't pay attention to is the fact that the chemicals that we create naturally and that those are just as addictive. They're the same thing. Yeah. That we they're, they're cre drugs create the same chemical reaction that we can create on our own through moments like these, through sex, through all these different things. We create those same highs. And in the last dance when you talk about Michael Jordan needing to go hit the blackjack table to get a high. And and listen, when he said he's addicted to competition and not gambling, I I believe him. It just doesn't matter. It's called gambling addiction. It's really just addiction. Yeah. He's addicted. He needs he pacifies himself with the rush that he gets from competition. The thing about professional sports is uh, that makes it different than wrestling is, is when you're no longer capable of doing it at the level that you once did it, you have to stop. There's no they will no longer pay you to do it. It is like even Michael Jordan won't make a team. You're right. done. Right. And so they stop before they get utterly embarrassed and can't make a team. But Jordan is such a great example of the same thing the Undertaker's going through because you heard at the end of the last dance. But and by the way, the fact that we have the last ride and the last dance at the same time is like I'm just it's I mean, nice. you talk about living through a high. Like the fact that the last dance is over is driving me crazy. But when you listen to Jordan and he says after six championships there's no satisfaction that it was maddening to walk away. He said maddening to walk away because he could have gotten a seventh. And it's like, no part of me thinks that if Jordan had come back for the seventh, he would have been like, oh, okay, seven was what I wanted. No, no, that was it. I'm done. He would have, Russell won eight straight. He would have wanted to pass <laughs> yeah. Russell. There's yeah. no doubt. And, and that's then he why would have passed Russell and that wouldn't have done it either. And that, and he comes back in 2001. Like, I mean, he, he came back. He, he didn't stay retired. He came back. And he had a run in the NBA that nobody talks about because that wasn't Jordan anymore. But he right. had, but he had that thing. And even though it was like you could come up with a million excuses, well, I wanted to come back so I could be a player coach. I wanted to come back so I could manage and have my fingers in the. No, you didn't. 
Jordan came back and played for the Washington Wizards because he wanted to be the greatest basketball player of all time still. Undertaker wants to have... I, you could argue that having that series of four matches, the two greatest of all time, arguably, with Sean, and then the two right under that with Hunter, having that series of four matches might be ultimately the worst thing that could have ever happened to The Undertaker because that's when The Undertaker realized that even because he was, he was older then. His career yeah. could have been over before then, you know. So the idea that at that point in his career, he had four of the best WrestleMania matches of all time, that is what I believe fuels The Undertaker to this day to think that the rules of humanity don't apply to him and he can still have that one match. I, I, I agree with you. And to me, I always think about, he talks about the Sean ending. To me, and I don't include the TNA stuff because we, we know what that was about, the flair ending yep. was what you want because it was such a long-term story mm-hmm. and it was so well done that when the when I'm sorry, uh, I love you, I'm sorry happens and he takes that sweet chin music and it ends, he knew I can never have a match in WWE again. It was too picture perfect. By the way, how odd is it that both the Shawn Michaels, the, the Ric Flair moment that you're talking about, Orlando in that build, in, in Camping World, whatever it's called now, or whatever it was called then, I don't know. But in that same building in Orlando was the Roman Reigns Undertaker match that should have been the, that was supposed to be the Undertaker's moment that you and I had our first WrestleMania professionally in WWE at WrestleMania 33. And where was I for that flair moment sitting next to you Yep, at WrestleMania 24 in that same building? Absolutely. And that was, and you could argue that really was another opportunity for him to end it when he leaves the, the jacket and the hat and the ring. But the match wasn't good. But the match wasn't good. So right. it's, it's, it's really interesting. I'm curious to see. And like, will, will he count a match like the Boneyard match that we all loved and was universally praised? Will he ever be able to consider that an end? You know, that's the question that everybody has about this series. Is because And what's great is that we don't know. The thing about The Last Dance is you know where it's going. This is a historical document for all intents and purposes. The Last Ride, people don't exactly know what the purpose of this is yet and where it's going. Um, I believe that this is not a buildup to an explanation for the last uh, for the boneyard match and how that was his last match. I believe that the AJ Styles Undertaker match was supposed to be his last match in a stadium full of people. Uh, but at the same time, I believe that this documentary was started at WrestleMania 33 as a one part documentary for his last match against Roman Reigns. Um, I fully believe that this documentary series is that flair storyline you were talking about that this documentary series is the buildup to his real last match. Unfortunately, he's now got to deal with the planet and the ramifications of that because I think The Undertaker wants his last match to be in a stadium full of people against AJ Styles. And when can that happen? It would, well, next year. Theoretically, we'll be- maybe. 
And will we see that keep going? You saw that at the Rumble, AJ Styles had that moment where they called back to The Undertaker still. Yes. I don't think they're done with that story. I think they know AJ is the perfect person for him Mm -hmm. because AJ can work with anyone and make it work and make it great regardless of where The Undertaker is physically. AJ is so good and physically size-wise everything works with him. So I, I think you're probably right about that. I'm curious to know now, though, how this documentary and the unveiling essentially of Mark Calloway as a human being mm-hmm. will factor into his comfort with ending it. Because I, I don't know, I, I doubt you heard it. I did a podcast a few weeks ago where I, I revealed my very Sam Roberts-like uh, take that I came up with recently, mm-hmm. which is Ric Flair has surpassed Hulk Hogan and is the GOAT, in my opinion, because the character Ric Flair Mm -hmm. that we see on television has become Richard Flair. When he's on TV and he he has a mic in his hand, he's no longer playing a part. He gets emotional, (laughs) he cries, he talks about his daughter, he talks about how he used to be messed up, but now he's healthier, how he almost died, and now he understands life better. The character, he's no longer trying to be Ric Flair. Ric Flair is trying to be Richard Flair. The problem with Hulk Hogan is Hulk Hogan has never for one second become Terry Bollea. So when he comes out in the ring, the only thing he can do is still wear the bandana and look like a cartoon version of himself cutting a very scripted, what you're going to do, brother? And we all have to admit, It seems a little dated. It seems a little cheesy. It doesn't work as much. And I wonder with Undertaker, now that Mark Calloway has been exposed, can we see an ending to him where the Undertaker character has a real human element and it allows us to say goodbye a little bit easier? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I love the Ric Flair theory because I think you're 100% right. And as a wrestling fan, you love that. And as a person who thinks about the human being, Richard Flair, you go, I wonder if that's healthy or not. You know what I mean? Like, I, he has gone all the way to the other side. It's like, you know, if if, if uh, a person were being taken over by a robot, he's submitted to the robot side. He's just like, okay, I'll just become a machine then. I'll just become the wrestler. And honestly, if you watch— No, but I think it's the opposite. I believe the wrestler has been taken over by Richard Flair. I love it because so many I, elements because there's been such a because so many elements of his personal life have been injected into the character, including the way he was retired. That everything. Yes, that that it all has become one thing. So when you the, the moment when I realized it was when he sat with Stone Cold. Yes. When he was talking with Stone Cold, he finally got to a place. Remember, there was a time when every interview he did, he was crying. Yes. He finally got to a place when he was with Austin. He had a couple moments of emotion that were normal, but he was really able. He talked about Reed briefly. He talked about almost dying. He talked about all these things in a way that was much more tempered. Like he he has an appreciation of how hard parts of his life have been. And also, because I really think for him, it was because of the near-death experience. Mm-hmm. He He just changed permanently. And there is a... He's on such bonus time at this point that I think he's seen a light that a lot of people never see. 
Yeah. And and Hogan is Hogan's bizarre because Hogan had the situation when he should have seen the light. Yeah. Instead, he wins this bizarro lawsuit <laughs> and and gets richer and now he just does this weird version of himself where everything's like about Jesus and I just don't really believe it still. I'm like, okay, this is just a new incarnation of your character. But I still don't know who he is, really. Well, there's yeah, there's two things. Uh, number one, I do love I'm putting the pieces together in my head. And I did listen to your podcast clip about how blown away you were that uh, you got a, a phone call from Ric Flair congratulating you to, from coming back to WWE, which was mind blowing to me, too. I was I was jealous of you and so happy for you all at the same time. You know, we lived through these things uh, right. vicariously. But I also love that, like, you've been able to come to the conclusion that Ric Flair is the greatest of all time at the same time as he also is your buddy now. So it's like, <laughs> like, like yeah, that's pretty convenient. But I can't argue, but I can't argue with your points, which is. Well, no, and the truth is, and the truth is, who do you know in our world that is buddies with Hogan? That, that is, it's telling of something. Flair has a real appreciation for everyone who sort of uh, shows him a lot of public adulation he really like gets it and and leans into it yeah he's just listen it, look, hogan i'll never be a denier of hogan's when he was on top no one's been more on top but when you get into the conversation about who has all the pieces and has done it all and and, and by that i include is truly a wrestler's wrestler that's why that's why to me flair ends up being that guy because the fact that he can have a five-star match with a broomstick is what makes him a, a different level also. Well, it's really interesting um, because when you look at characters like that, you look at big characters. And I think that that is the mark, I guess. When 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 fans like us start ranking greatest of all time, there does have to be that thing where there is no separation between real person and wrestler. Like, you, j it's one package. Um, and, I, and you may be right that Ric Flair has done, become that, maybe without even trying, more so than anybody else. Uh, I think that Cena is probably, to go back to Cena, is probably the closest to a Hulk Hogan-type character that's been on top in the sense that it's for kids, it's uh, it's it's cartoony, it can get cheesy. But I think that in, in recent years, Cena has started that process that Ric Flair is on, where the man John Cena and the wrestler John Cena are, are merging. And when you see and hear from John Cena, it feels like a real person. Um, I don't think that Hulk Hogan ever really made that connection. I think that that when we look back at Hulk Hogan and the nostalgia of Hulk Hogan, uh, we look at that character the same way if we grew up in the 80s, we look at He-Man and Ghostbusters and Thundercats. Like, when mm -hmm. Hulk Hogan was a good guy, it's an over-the-top cartoon character. Even in the NWO, when Hulk Hogan went over Hollywood. Over-the-top cartoon character. Yep, it was, it was just as impactful, which I think that's what time has shown us, that Hollywood Hulk Hogan is actually as big a character as the immortal Hulk Hogan in it's, wrestling. It's gigantic. Yes. Couldn't agree more. But also an over-the-top cartoon character, not a real person. So the real Terry never really came through in Hulk Hogan, I don't think. And he, I love that we're getting it from Undertaker now. I never yes. thought I would have wanted it from him, but we're getting it now. And I'm like, they could really use this yes. in making his last run meaningful. But I'll tell you, I started to realize that without even realizing it. I was making arguments about the Boneyard match. A lot of people said this is American Badass Undertaker in the Boneyard match. And my theory was very, very simple. If we don't hear Fred Durst or Kid Rock, it ain't American Badass. It's something else. 
American Badass Undertaker, Limp Biscuit, and Kid Rock are all associated together. We didn't. Yeah. That wasn't to me the American Badass when, and I and I say that it's the American Badass. So the Undertaker is not just there's Dead Man Undertaker and there's American Badass Undertaker. We can't sit here and act like the Undertaker is there's two versions. There is 90s Undertaker that works in the 90s. There is uh, mid 90s leather suit Survivor Series come down from the ceiling Undertaker. That's a different Undertaker. There's Ministry of Darkness, demonic flirting with satanic Undertaker that worked in the Attitude Era. Then there's American Badass Undertaker. And by the way, there's long hair and short hair American Badass Undertaker. Yep. Then when we get to WrestleMania 20 and the old Undertaker returns, it's not really the old Undertaker. It's this sort of Old West Undertaker type character where, you know, he looks different. He feels different. Then you've got the Undertaker that starts evolving into some of Mark Calloway's actual interest, which is MMA. And he starts wearing the gloves and he starts doing the chokeholds and he evolves even more so. And that to me is probably athletically the Undertaker in his prime. Um, I think that what we're seeing now is this man who who is explaining that, that this is all the Undertaker, that there isn't just, is this this character or that character? It is all... Mark Calloway, and it always has been. And I think that the that, that, that WrestleMania this year was just an evolution of all those characters. And and AJ Styles actually is the one that removed the curtain and 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 forced us to deal with the fact that we know the Undertaker is married to Michelle McCool. We know the Undertaker's name is Mark Calloway. We know he's a man. And I feel like the Boneyard match character was Dead Man, American Badass, and Mark Calloway all coming together into this character that is much closer to the person that we see in this documentary. And you're right. I didn't think that I, when a week before the, when I knew the documentary was coming and right before I watched it, I was like, I just realized I don't want to see this. I don't want to see The Undertaker as a human being. Same reason I don't, I didn't love seeing The Undertaker on Twitter. Like, I don't want the curtain pulled back. And then when it really was pulled back all the way, I was like, I didn't realize how much I needed this. I yeah. love this. I'm so glad it's been pulled back because now I not only believe The Undertaker is a character, but I officially care about him as a human being. Yeah, and I, I hope it works for him in that same way. And he realizes this is pretty cool. Like this new run, I do press, I talk, yeah. people get to know me. I think that could really feed in to a proper ending that he feels comfortable with. And guess what? It allows the landing to be a lot softer because once you've introduced the character, guess what? Now you can appear on a panel where you talk. You can can show up at a a pay-per-view and they can interview him and say, oh, we're, we're here with The Undertaker. Talk to us about this. And he can start to be a person who's still involved with the business instead of completely having to disappear because he's the dead man. I think there, he's, he's giving himself a softer landing and more options in his post-ring career. Yeah, the idea that The Undertaker works backstage is now we can all wrap our heads around it because we know who this man is. And it's interesting that you talk about addiction and this idea that we all, like, you know, I mean, look, I think the reason you and I have very similar work ethics in the sense that we always have something going on, we're always doing something, is because that there is that obsessive, addiction quality to both you and I in our field. We don't feel right when we're not doing something that furthers 
what our goals are in broadcasting or in our hobbies. And, and that's why we also can't leave our hobbies alone. You and I can't just be wrestling fans. We can't just right. sit there and watch the show. We have to do something. So I think you yes. and I could both relate to what's going on on some level. But when I listen to Shawn Michaels and there is this painting of Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker having a lot of parallels and talking about how Shawn Michaels also has that addiction gene in general, but he it, it, it showed itself through wrestling. Um, but I think... I think that Shawn Michaels still has it. I think he's handling it more healthy, but there's a reason why Shawn Michaels didn't stay home. Like we all say he, we know he retired and yeah, I mean, he came back for that match, but you know, I, I think that he, you know, that match was that match, but I think the, the bigger story is not only that Shawn Michaels literally moved his entire family and works full time, full time in the performance center. But let's be honest. When he did the last ride, when he's talking about all this stuff, what was on his head? He was wearing an undisputed era hat. Shawn Michaels is aware that he can't do this, but he is still feeding his addiction. There is no way. And I don't know this. I haven't talked to Shawn or Adam Cole or seen anything that I'm not supposed to see. I'm speaking purely from a fan perspective and my own theories as I'm deeply thinking about what I'm watching. But I fully believe that Shawn Michaels is in the modern day fulfilling that addiction thing in a healthy way by living vicariously through the undisputed era and Adam Cole. And I mean, I can see when Adam Cole is wrestling, you know, you can see the similarities to Shawn Michaels. And then when you realize that Shawn Michaels is behind the scenes working with him, you go, Oh, so maybe, you know, that, that mental thing that Shawn still wants to accomplish, he's able to get out of him by watching a monitor and seeing Adam Cole execute ideas that Sean might have given him. 100%. I had the same thought about him being back at the PC. I was like, wait, you fully retired, but now you're just back to working all the time? Yeah. Like, and, this is not over and, at all. And and we had Flash Morgan Webster from NXT UK on the podcast last week. And Flash Morgan Webster talked about and like you know if you're in the uk he's a big enough name and, and he's on all the nxt uk posters and everything but there's a lot of people who don't know who flash morgan webster is it's not like it's goldberg you know it's flash morgan webster he's an up-and-comer so he said that he encountered Shawn michaels at uh, one of the nxt uk shows that sean and again sean is flying to the uk to produce nxt uk shows that's how much he loves wrestling but right He's in, obviously Flash Morgan Webster is intimidated by Sean, you know, a little bit. He's like, oh, my God, this is Sean Michaels. You know, he's on that list. When we're making our arguments for greatest of all time, Sean's all the, on the list. Sean, I did a whole soliloquy for me. When you, you know, when you talk about the Michael Jordan of WWE, it's Sean. And, and you know, that's that's it for me. I'm 100 percent sure that Sean Michaels is the Michael Jordan of WWE. So, um. But he goes, when Flash Morgan Webster finally intera interacts with Sean, it's Sean going up to him saying, hey, are you going to do this and this and this that you usually do tonight? And then Flash Morgan Webster has this realization that Sean has been at home watching Flash Morgan Webster tapes to get himself ready to produce this show. And it's like the fact that Sean, Sean is Sean. He could just phone it in, but he doesn't. He sits there and he watches tapes of Flash Morgan Webster and a bunch of other guys that he doesn't have to watch because he's 100% full into this thing. And I love that. I mean, I 
absolutely love watching Sean be able to truly yeah, I mean, listen, dive in. Does his the question I guess would be does his does his wife love it? Does his family love it? Who knows? Maybe but for us, but maybe but for too us his fans. Yeah, it's 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 what you it's what we want. Of course, we want them to always want to keep. Listen, I'm not I'm not judging. Maybe his family loves it and they have no problem with it. Right. Maybe they think this guy's a psychopath. But please come home. I don't know. <laughs> but for us as fans, yeah, you want these guys who meant so much to you as talent to yet to love it so much that they can't really let it go. Yeah, that's kind of part of the appeal, honestly. Yeah, yeah. and also I would think that I would hope. You know, his wife, his family, they've, he's, he's, you know, he's had his family for as long as he's had them. They know him, right? They, they probably would rather have a fulfilled Shawn Michaels who sometimes takes a trip to the UK than an unfulfilled Shawn Michaels at home all the time. Right. Who's sitting around being like, uh, and all, and just sitting there yearning to leave and, and go do this again. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I Sean is also a hundred percent in that conversation. It's, it's interesting because both Sean and Undertaker would often get left off the Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Yet you can also make an argument that they're the greatest. Yeah, yeah. I think you, I, I, It's just as reasonable to leave them off the Mount Rushmore as it is to argue that they're the greatest, which I think is incredibly compelling. Yeah, for me, first of all, it's important that I put the caveat on there. Uh, w- WWE. WWE, because Ric Flair is not the Michael Jordan of WWE. You could talk about wrestling, you could do all this stuff, but Ric Flair accomplished so much outside of WWE that he had the greatest retirement in the history of WWE. He had an amazing couple of runs, but he's not the greatest of all time in WWE. I think that for me, Shawn Michaels is the Michael Jordan greatest of all time in WWE. And in terms of best, in terms of my favorite, my favorite WWE superstar of all time is undoubtedly the undertaker. He's my favorite WWE superstar of all time. That is the distinction that I, that I, that I make. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's so interesting. I, I struggle so much to come up with an absolute favorite. Um, you know, like I, I, I tend to go back and forth between Savage and Brett. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, undertaker is almost like, it's almost like I take him for granted. Like yes. he was just always there. Yes. You know, Savage is glorified for me because in the in the in the when you really look at the grand scheme of things, the Savage run was short. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about essentially ten years. Yeah, and even ten years, it's like a lot. So that's extending. That's it. That that's giving you the I commentary mean, me, years. Yeah, I mean that's that's yeah for for me mm-hmm. the Savage years that matter five years. Yeah. 87 yeah. to 92. Yeah. That's really like the savage that truly matters for me. Now, it does speak to how iconic he is that those five years were so ridiculous. And by the way, 92, impactful. 92 is all commentary. I mean, he he lost his match with the Warrior in 91. So it's really four. But uh um WrestleMania was, 7 was 91. You could go if you're if you're talking about who WrestleMania. Was SummerSlam, who was his SummerSlam match at 92, the one you were at? I mean, that was Warrior. Yeah. So he was still he was still yeah. warrior in ninety two into ninety two. Yeah, yeah. No, and 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 I mean, you know, I think that that it doesn't get talked about enough. But the ninety two WrestleMania match with Ric Flair is amazing. It's the best match on that WrestleMania. Well, and no, that well, and that story was pipe, amazing. 
Piper Brett is the best match on that WrestleMania, but Flair, fantastic. Flair Savage is also uh, on that it's, list. It's, yeah. it, and then the story they told with Elizabeth and Flair yes. was great. And it's, listen, it was sort of like they hinted at it. And not, no, not even hint to it. The, the Undertaker AJ thing where they just referenced the wife is one thing. The way they did Flair and Savage was a different thing altogether. But um, listen, Undertaker is a totally reasonable argument for the greatest WWE superstar of all time. I go back and forth between thinking the, the true goats of the whole thing, mm-hmm. WWE and beyond, are Flair uh, and Austin. Mm-hmm. But But Austin's run on top is still relatively short, too, when you talk about it next to The Undertaker. Yeah, Austin's run on top was super short. I still, depending on the given day, I might tell you Stone Cold Steve Austin is the the greatest of all time. You know, it's I mean, well, you know, it feels that way now. And when you watch back, when you watch back Stone Cold in his prime, you're sitting there going like, I don't care if he was only this guy for two weeks. He's the greatest. There's nothing better than what I'm watching right now. No one, and, and the, the Austin in his prime pop is the, is uh, the greatest pop of all time. Uh, and it's, and it's you, talk, you talk about moments. The way he went out, that no, he didn't even. That's the most. Stone Cold Steve Austin's exit from the ring was the most uh, character appropriate. The fact that there was no celebration, there was no announcement. It was the biggest. It should have been the main. It you know, in hindsight, it should have been the last match on the show. You would never know, but in hindsight, of course. But yes. the fact that it was his third WrestleMania main event with The Rock. And then he just left and never heard from again. And that was it. It's like, that is, that and is he, the he way ba- He basically had no out. business having the match. Yeah. Has the match, does the honors, quietly leaves uh, against, and he does it with, you know, he, he does the job mm-hmm. to the guy who shared that time with him. But ultimately, he understood that even though he was the greater of the two of them in wrestling, he understood that Rocky's popularity beyond wrestling meant so much for everyone. I feel like when it comes to WWE kickoff shows, you and I are the Stone Cold and the Rock of our era, and it would just be an argument as to who would do the job for who. It's a great point, would, and we know you wouldn't do the job. It would, no, I don't do jobs. It would just be, <laughs> I don't do You're jobs. like Father Time. Yeah. You don't do jobs. No, 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 exactly right. That was a great quote by JR, by the way. Well, look, there, was, there were many other things that I wanted to talk to you about. You and I have established a great theory about Jordan's sneakers uh, as compared to WrestleMania's. There was the Travis Scott thing with Mick Foley, but when you and I get on a topic, we tend to go. So uh, we'll leave it at that. Uh, great episode. I am tortured that we don't get episode three until June 14th. I don't know if you saw that at the end of this episode. I know, and that's like a different world. I don't even know what the world's going to be on June 14th. Mean either, but I'm I'm looking forward to hearing the Goldberg match be talked about. Of course, Peter Rosenberg's uh, wrestling podcast is Cheap Heat, and uh, everything else Peter Rosenberg does is fantastic. Always good, man. Anytime you want me, buddy. I'm here. Good talking, man. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Not Sam Wrestling.